Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. In uh, just a moment, we're going to have a really cool conversation with Dale Francisco, who is a uh, former Santa Barbara City Council member, and he's got tons of opinions on everything related to the June primary and the election. So uh, it's a good conversation, at times controversial, but nonetheless interesting, and he knows what he's uh, talking about on a lot of these issues. I want to ask you, please subscribe to this podcast. So uh, just hit subscribe on YouTube. We're uh, growing subscribers, and it's super important for me to grow my subscriber base because I want to be able to grow this podcast and reach a larger audience. So it doesn't cost you any money at all. Just hit subscribe on YouTube. Go ahead and like it, write a review, share it with people. But the more subscribers means that I'm able to reach a larger audience. And it also means that you're going to get my original content first before you see it on any other platform. So thank you so much for taking the time to watch these podcasts. I'm having a blast. I hope you're enjoying them. And I really appreciate everything that you do to support it. You can also go over to my website, SantaBarbaraTalks.com, and uh, consider making a financial contribution to uh, help me do this. I do these on my own. Uh, these are produced by me and any contribution goes directly back to me, the content creator, to expand the audience to an even larger um, platform. So I appreciate everything you do. So hit subscribe. Thanks a lot for your time. And uh, here's a conversation with Dale Francisco. Thanks a lot. Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina, and it's such a pleasure today to be here with a man who in 2007 shocked the world, and I, I am not exactly... Our little world, our little world. Our little world, <laughs> it, is, it is our world. I, I'm not exaggerating, you know, we had a Muhammad Ali, when he uh, uh, upset, knocked out, you know, he came back, knocked out George Foreman, he shocked the world, right, and here in Santa Barbara, we have Dale Francisco, who I would say out of nowhere, but not really out of nowhere, because you were doing the work in the neighborhoods, but you won a spot on the Santa Barbara City Council in 2007 and tipped the balance of power. You were a conservative, although I know that's that's a word that we'll probably discuss, but you weren't like the others on the City Council, and you got elected, and this was a profound moment in the history of Santa Barbara because you kind of ushered in a whole bunch of other conservatives you know a few who were able to get elected so you were groundbreaking in that sense uh, you have a long distinguished uh, background of neighborhood involvement civic involvement you're obviously a former council member two terms and former head of the local Republican Party. You've done a lot of great things. So looking forward to this conversation that we're going to have wide ranging and a whole bunch of topics. But first off, Dale Francisco, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Josh. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. Yeah. And I, I, I want to thank you for that wonderful introduction. I mean, I, I couldn't have written it better myself. And I just want to let people know uh, money did not trade hands here. <laughs> Yes. Well, um, I, I enjoy a little promotion every now and then. And uh, when I do say it, I mean it. And so, you know, that is I appreciate that, it. That is real. 
And um, I want to sort of uh, get to that. I want to get to your political story in a second. But first off, I want to talk to you about what's going on right now. We're in an election season of sorts. Of course, we have some contests that are not really a race in terms of anybody's challenging them. And then we've got some others that are getting some high profile attention. You, Dale, have been influential in the Republican Party, and I know the Republican Party is not all one group. It's, you know, it's different and different people, and it's a pull and tug, and it's changed all, all over, over the years. But let's talk right away. When you look at this June primary, what's on your mind? What's of interest to you that you're sort of paying attention to you as, as somebody who's a former elected and somebody who people turn to for, for advice? Well, Josh, the, the situation, first, I think we need to look at it overall from the, the state situation. Obviously, in a, in a sense, this is a one-party state. The Democrats control every state office, and it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon. Here in Santa Barbara County, we have the North County is Republican, but the South County, where the majority of voters are, not necessarily the majority of population, but the majority of voters, is strongly Democratic. So for the candidates that I am likely to support, it's an uphill battle most of the time. So I look at, I look at what I think is potentially winnable. That's where most of my focus is. Yeah. So if you, if, you, if you look at the ballot right now, for instance, I'll give you a good example. Governor Newsom and I didn't count them, 30 other candidates running for governor. Yeah. So, so I'm sure that there are good candidates among the 29. I have no doubt about that. However, the political reality is when you have one man who has strong name recognition, he's an incumbent, he's endorsed by the Democratic Party, running against 29 others, the likelihood of one of those 29 getting across the, the wire is slim. That's just reality. Yeah. So I tend not to put a whole lot of energy personally. I'm not advising other people to do this. I don't put a whole lot of my thought into races that I think are, are almost hopeless. Yeah. So, and, and you're also right. When you look at a lot of the races locally, a lot of them, are uncontested. That's, again, that's a reflection of the fact that we live in essentially a one-party state, and particularly in our area, the Democrats have a two-to-one registration advantage over Republicans. Generally speaking, if it's, well, realistically speaking, if it's more than about a five to seven percent registration advantage against you, it's really tough. If it's 10 percent, most political professionals will say, forget it. If it's 20%, which it is in most of the races here, you know, I don't wanna be discouraging to people, but fighting against a 20% registration disadvantage is really, really tough. Mm -hmm. And the only time that a candidate can pull something like that off is if the incumbent has done something really bad or really stupid. Yeah. I mean, we, we saw that in the Virginia gubernatorial race last year uh you know terry mcauliffe by the numbers probably should have won that race yeah. uh, but when he made the dramatic mistake in a debate of saying i don't think parents should have anything to do with what their children are taught in school um now that's not an exact quote i'm paraphrasing 
he lost the election. That was it. So it's possible for someone with a strong advantage to make a big mistake and lose. But if you don't make a mistake, that doesn't happen very often. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's such good wisdom and knowledge because so many times candidates get like a bug in their head for whatever reason they listen to their really close inner circle. Uh, Maybe they just feel that they have a calling to, to serve, you know, in public office and they haven't done a whole lot of research into the history of politics in Santa Barbara County. And so they just think, well, of course I can do it. Of course I can run. I, I, people like me and I say things that people agree with and, and yeah, look what's going on nationally and I can do it. And that's a really grave mistake because (laughs) um, you have to appeal. If you're a conservative in this town, in this County, you've got to somehow convince no party preference people, moderates, and probably a couple of Democrats too, to come over and vote for you. Yeah. Okay. So that's 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 hard. You you don't talk to your base. The Democrats, right? right. They talk to their base and they get them to vote because they have a, a, a registration advantage. So if we get all the Dems to vote, Dems are going to win. Conservatives, they talk to their base, but largely that base isn't enough, as you have articulated here. Let me ask you about the county superintendent's race, because that seems to be one that is getting a lot of attention. You know, Jerry and I uh, talk about it a lot on Newsmakers, and we are, um, you know, something as pundits, you know, uh, able to talk about. Do you think Christy Lozano has a chance of pulling off an upset here? And, you know, why or why not? So Christy faces the same sort of disadvantages that I was just talking about. The she's going up against an incumbent. Uh, She's at a registration disadvantage. She is uh, a first time candidate and the I was very lucky when I was a first-time candidate because I was I was running in a race that nobody had the remotest idea that I might possibly win, and it was a, a low turnout election. So I was under the radar. Christy isn't. You know, she's been, she's been a focus. I mean, she's been so much a focus that they actually filed a lawsuit to try to keep her off the ballot. Um, so she faces all the disadvantages that a first-time candidate running in an uphill race faces. On the other hand, she is a representative of a very important issue right now. And when she first posted that YouTube video about the, uh, what I'll just call the woke curriculum at Santa Barbara Unified, when she posted that, it went viral for a reason. A lot of parents are concerned about this. And it's, it's a, It's a national issue, but it's a local issue as well. So on the one hand, she's she's definitely running an uphill battle, but she's running on something that a lot of people, particularly parents, care a great deal about. And when I think back to when I think back to my first race, the analogy that I would make is, and this is not so 
not quite as much an issue now as it was then, but this was in the heyday of, of our transportation, our city transportation department pushing the traffic calming. No. And that had a lot of people up in arms. No. And whenever I spoke at a forum about that, I got thunderous applause. No. So if you can galvanize voters around a particular issue that is really important to them, then you can overcome the odds. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, uh, that's totally true. It's, it's a little bit different in the sense of it's a nonpartisan issue, traffic calming, ball belts, and we're going to get to your story. Uh, many roundabouts, everybody shares the roads. And so, you, so right. you're impacted. I want to ask you about religion in politics, uh, Dale. Um, there, there's, you know, a couple of these candidates, you know, are are evangelicals, and they're they're, they're they are running, and they've talked about it publicly about how they are are um, people of faith. And I'm wondering, do you see any overlap in people of faith, sort of having this calling, this sort of other kind of uh, motivation to serve an office because obviously if you are a believer the idea is that it is your calling to go out into the world to make change to make an impact to make a difference Um, you have to serve in that way and that it's it's part of the psychology of people aren't going to like you because you're doing work that is good people are going to be uncomfortable because you're doing the work that is good and so it's a natural built-in sort of mindset of yes if I run people are going to doubt me because that's exactly what the message is when you're trying to spread the scripture there are people who are doubting you and I mentioned this because I think there's a little bit of a, a psychology disconnect that I don't think God cares about who wins and loses in politics. I honestly don't. I, I don't think, that, and I don't think that if Democrats are in power, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's an ungodly state. If conservatives are in power, I don't think it means that it's a godly state. But you have these candidates who, who feel called without doing the work and the research and that making the, the connections to win. You, you still have to win. I might think that I belong in the NBA. Okay. I might think that. And I might. I got news for you. I got news for you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I I might have a good jump shot, right? I might be good at playing defense and I might have some skills, but it is impossible for me to get there. Okay. No matter how special I think I am. Right. Is there something analogous to these people who try to run for these offices in a county where the registration advantage is just about impossible for you to pull off an upset? What do you think? I think if someone is running, if someone is running for office exclusively because of a call to evangelize, I think that's a mistake. Now, on the other hand, it's perfectly possible for people to, for part of their motivation to public service, to be religious and to have that as, as part of what's making up, well, not only their character, obviously it's, it's central to their character, but also to their 
policy decisions. I, Hal Conklin is a great example of that. Hal Conklin uh, was on council here, uh, ran unsuccessfully for mayor the last time, but still got a lot of support. Hal is a, was a very religious man. And I'm sure that that was part of his, an important part of his motivation for public service. So I don't see a problem with that at all. Um, it sounds to me like what you're describing is someone who's running exclusively because of some religious calling. And I, good luck with that. Yeah. Well, you know, look at how, how was well liked. How was in the community. He had served, he had connections, he shook your hand, he networked. Uh, there were, for every person who, who said they liked how there were 10 people saying, oh my goodness, no way, right? You have to make the connection. You, and that's so important. I think that's the thing that you did as so, so well too. So do you have a prediction? Do you think uh, Christy Lozano can pull off an upset knowing that she's tapped into an issue that a lot of parents are concerned about and it's the schooling of their children? I don't want to make a prediction on the outcome. Mm -hmm. However, as I said, I think she has a chance mm -hmm. and, and no one's denying, I think, the last, uh, the last show that you did with Jerry and Nick, Nick called Susan Salcedo the 8,000-pound gorilla. I think that's a little extreme, but she, she does have a huge, huge advantage. Uh, there's no question about it. And Christie's a first-time candidate. First-time candidates have a lot to learn. So, um, but I wish her luck. I think, she's, I think she's got a good message. Yeah, and, and just to follow up on that, what I hear about Christy is, qualifications okay um i hear people saying that this isn't a even a city council job or a school board job where you literally don't have to know anything to serve because the staff does all the work for you and if you're a good listener you can pay attention and then make the best decision based off the information in front of you uh, but this is a job that's a job job even though it's an elected position meaning you have to have legitimate leadership skills uh, administrative skills you have to know how to manage budgets and manage people and not just a little bit, you have to have some sort of experience with that. How much do you value uh, qualifications in this discussion? Because that's what people are saying. They're saying, well, one person has the qualifications, the other person doesn't. The other person's a PE coach. You know, they, 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 you hear this sort of dissection yeah. of that. Right. How much credibility weight do you give to that discussion? Well, we could probably talk all day about this one. <laughs> and the, the, the value of, the value of, of qualifications versus leadership in, in any particular job at any particular point in time can change. Yeah. So I would start by saying that this is a time when our, our county school system and school systems all over the country need leadership. Because what we see is, and we certainly see it here, is declining test scores, continually declining test scores. Mm -hmm. And the schools can accomplish a lot of other wonderful things. But if the students, when they graduate, don't have the real world skills to tackle life, then the schools have failed. Mm -hmm. So, th so that's, that's a piece where I think leadership is so important. And I think Christy 
has demonstrated strong leadership. Now on the, on the administrative side, a lot, of what, a lot of what county schools does, as far as I understand, and I'm not claiming to be an expert, but a lot of it is compliance. And compliance is handled by specialists. Susan Salcedo is not burning the midnight oil going over Santa Maria, Santa Maria uh, School District budget. I'm sure that's not happening. I'm sure she has plenty of talented CPAs, talented attorneys who focus on compliance issues. So that's, I mean, that's a, it's an important function that the county performs for all of the school districts in the county. It's, it's a valuable function, but there's professional staff that's taking care of it. So that's an example, I think, of, I won't say that, that, uh, that SBCEO runs itself. It doesn't, of course, you need leadership, but you don't need to know every little detail of those compliance functions. I think the most important qualification that somebody who is tasked with leading a, an umbrella organization for all the schools in the county, the most important qualification that they bring to that is their experience as a teacher. And Christy has that in spades. So she's taught every grade level and she has the experience of seeing children go through the school system from, from a very early age till the time they graduate high school. That I think is the most important qualification if you're gonna be a leader in an organization. And I can, I can say from my own experience, having worked in the tech world, I started out at the very bottom. I started out as the most junior software engineer at the first company I worked for. And had I not had that experience and had I not moved up from there, I never could have been a, a successful manager, let alone a director, let alone a CEO mm -hmm. of a tech company. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I'm not saying that I have the qualifications to be the CEO of a tech company, but the, the, the importance of understanding the mission of your organization from the ground up, you can't overestimate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that it's uh, one thing that Christy has been able to do well is, is get name recognition, right? Uh, she, she, she's been able to get her name out there. And at the end of the day, many voters will just vote based off of a name they remember, right? That's sad okay. reality is like, yeah. oh, that person sounds like they'll shake it up. Let me vote for that person. And there's going to yeah. be a percentage of those who do it. But one of the things that conservatives underestimate is the power of the Democratic Party to... Uh, I don't underestimate it. I know you don't, Dale. <laughs> uh, but but some, of, some other people who have not been in the trenches over the years working at this, the, the canvassing, the phone banking, the feet on the ground that go out there and make a difference. And that's much more impactful than a, a bunch of signs or a bunch of advertisements. And then again, it's the voter registration. That is the biggest challenge, you know, yep. and Andrew Firestone yep. can probably win any office in Santa Barbara County, probably because even though he's a Republican, he's uh, extraordinarily well-liked and he's a good guy and he's, you know, he's a person of the community and he's got incredible name recognition. He was a bachelor. Exactly. Right. So there, that right there, that just on that, there's a percentage of people who vote that someone like that, that is the person who is the future of the Republican party. 
So let me dive into. I'll I'll, I'll pass that along. Yes, please do. I've been, I've been trying to get that out there for a while. I don't think he's ready to run yet. So um, what's going on with the Republican Central Committee, Dale? And we don't have to name names or be specific, but, but just in general, the Dem Party, they've had their changes, of course. You know, they've gone from Duraka to Laramore Hall to Gail Teton Landis. Now Darcel Elliott is the chair. Uh, the Republican Party, of course, has had its own leadership changes over the years. Uh, why? And this is somebody who I don't, pick and choose who I talk to or like. I'm not one of those reporters who's like, you're a Republican, I don't talk to you. You're this or that, I don't talk to you. I like talk to everybody because I'm a journalist, but there's value in everyone you talk to, even if you don't agree politically. And I really believe that. But there's something going on with Republicans that why, why are these candidates, these candidates, why can't there be sort of this uh, you know, growing of local talent to sort of have legitimate contests where these there's people challenging we have supervisor races where there's no challenger okay why that seems to be a problem the dems at least try to find people in the community and kind of put them in spots and grow them so that they can to have leadership skills years down the road why can't the party do that the republican party I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about living in a one-party state. In my in my limited experience, and I haven't, I have certainly have not been on the inside of the local Democratic Central Committee. But in my experience, uh, what I've seen is most county central committees are not incredibly well run. They're not incredibly functional. There tends to be a lot of bickering and dissension, and enthusiasm about the political issues on whatever side the the central committee might be supporting but not necessarily a political sophistication about how elections are won and lost there's there's a lot of passion and not not as much knowledge as there needs to be now there are some exceptions to that i can speak to the san diego republican central committee they're huge they're extraordinarily well run they have a lot of uh, former electeds in positions of power. That's invaluable. Mm-hmm. So to start with, looking at the Republican uh, Central Committee here in Santa Barbara County, we don't have a lot of former uh, Republican electeds in the first place. That's a problem. We also don't have the enormous, enormous financial support that the local Democratic Central Committee gets from the state. So every dollar that the Republican Central Committee raises in donations, it has to go out on its own and find them, which is always a challenge. And it's especially a challenge when you don't have a huge track record of success getting candidates into office. On the other hand, the Democratic Central Committee really doesn't have to do any fundraising itself. That's all going to be directed to them by the state party. So I'm at, Again, don't get me wrong. I'm not insulting our local Democratic Central Committee, whose people, by and large, I don't know. But they could be total incompetence, and they would still get four or five hundred thousand dollars a year donated to them, to be parceled out to the various candidates that they need to support. So, I mean, that's a that's a huge advantage that the Democratic Central Committee has that the Republican Committee does not. Yeah, I, and I feel just feel like there's. 
millions of dollars to be made by a strategic Republican uh, consulting firm to come into town and start taking a look, a look at these issues because um, having random candidates who, you know, not to disparage them, maybe they'll win. Great. Good for them. But having just sort of like the roll of the dice every couple of years is not a good way to, to grow power. I want to talk to you about the uh, county clerk recorder assessor. Uh, Joe Holland has a, a challenge again from, uh, you know, uh, he's a Galita planning commissioner, L. Rod McClern. He's running. Uh, do you see that as um, insurmountable or uh, do you put that on the same level as the Christy Lozano situation? Josh, I don't know enough about that race to really tell you. I think that obviously Joe Holland, again, he has the he has the name recognition, he has the incumbent advantage, and that's that's always hard to beat. Yeah, but I, I just don't know enough about that race. All right, let me ask you about, and that's probably gonna that's your answer, really, right? You know, if 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 the the challenger has not gotten their name out to the point where everyone's kind of talking, it's probably not going to happen you know uh, i want to talk to you about the supervisors race laura caps is on the school board uh she ran against das williams her first district santa barbara county supervisor was unsuccessful there uh it was close she ran a good campaign didn't work out for her uh but with the redistricting now she has an opportunity to run in the second district and she moved she lived really close to the second district she moved and she's been in the community a long time so it's not i don't think no one can really call her names for that you know she's been in the community um these these are uh, geographic lines that are close but anyway uh, no one challenged her right? right so is that is that good for democracy what do you think of that situation well i don't think i don't think living in a one-party state is good for democracy i think california as a state was much better off when there was a real competition between the republican and democratic parties that being said Laura lives in a district where I believe the last time I checked, it was a 20 point democratic registration advantage. I'm not going to discourage someone else from running who is not a Democrat, but again, you have to be realistic. There has to be something galvanizing to voters that's going to swing an election against those kinds of odds. And at a certain point you have to say, what am I what am I going to tell my supporters? How am I going to go out and ask people for money to support a campaign that looks like it doesn't stand much of a chance? Now, I I probably disagree with Laura Capps on 90% of the issues, but I also I know Laura and I know she's I mean she's a good lady and she by her lights she wants to do the right thing. So that's, that's just tough to overcome. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if I were looking at it, I could have run for that seat, but I don't personally, for me, I don't think there would have been a chance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You would have forced a debate though, a conversation, you know, that's true. And that's, that's a good thing. Um, some of the, well, I mean, you could look at, uh, my time on city council, that was a lot of debating. <laughs> and I think I exposed some issues that maybe people hadn't thought about for a long time. Maybe they didn't even know that those issues were there. Right. I, I certainly learned a lot myself that I didn't know about government. Yeah. Yeah. And we're almost there, but I want to talk to you about Stoker and Hart. That's headed to November. 
Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, technically they're campaigning now. Um, what do you think there? Greg Hart is the shoe in. Does Mike Stoker have a chance based off name recognition? And again, it is nor it is a different district. It's an assembly district. So there's lots right. more conservatives. What do you think? Right. I think that Mike does have the advantage of name recognition. No question about that. Again, Greg has the he has the registration advantage. The I would say that at at least as far as I know right now, there isn't a there isn't a critical issue that is really going that people don't already know about that is going to sway voters one way or the other. Yeah. I could be wrong about that. Something could change between now and November. That's certainly possible. But it's hard to run against that kind of of, of registration disadvantage. And there isn't, a, there isn't an issue, at least I haven't heard one so far, that either from Greg or from Mike, that is so blazing red hot and high on their priority list that voters from either side are going to swing to one or the other. Yeah, and with the status quo, Greg Hart wins. You know, Mike Stoker's going to have to, you, you've got to disrupt the election if you're a Republican in a very significant way. I would agree. And uh, maybe he's got something going on, but he's also ran quite a bit. And, you know, with the name recognition comes other other familiarity to voters. So, and uh, we've got a sheriff's race at all. Any thoughts on that? Are you following uh, uh, <laughs> Bill Brown and whether there's going to be an upset there? I mean, it's kind of the same situation, sort of. They're, they're both conservative, although Brown is a Republican. Juan Camarena is not, but he was a Republican up until a year ago when he was oh, deciding okay. to run. He's not now because uh, he's running. But what do you what do you think of that contest? Uh, any upset potential there? Well, Bill Brown has been in office since the end of the last ice age, right? And <laughs> the <laughs> it's interesting because county sheriffs and police chiefs tend to be the most controversial political candidates. They're, they're the most often attacked of any politician, as far as, I, as far as I can see. So the fact that Bill Brown has survived this long means that he's, he's either a very astute politician or he's doing something right, uh, or maybe both. So it, it's, it's a tough, it's very, very tough to challenge someone like that. And, and Juan Camarena has lots of endorsements, uh, he may be a fantastic guy. He might make a wonderful county sheriff. His problem is getting out there with a with a message that is so powerful that he'll he'll get people on his side. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely true. I mean, I think the, the biggest advice in terms of covering elections year after year and here in the Bay Area is that I mean, most people are nice people. Most people are good people. Um, they have everybody has people who love them. <laughs> That's not the issue at all. The issue is money, message, and organization. And you need all three of those things to be able to have a chance to win. And if the voter registration is against you, then you're going to have to do something to topple that candidate. And just running because you're good is really tough because you have to run when you're clearly better and the other person is bad 
And if that's not the situation, you got to fabricate it. You got to make it happen from a political strategy perspective. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know how to do that, or if you don't have the money to do that, it's just not going to work for you in, in politics. Um, but we'll see, um, you know, when nobody thought Trump would win and he won. So uh, there you go. You, yeah. you know, as, as much a punditry and we can talk, you just don't know until election night. So we'll see. Right. How it goes. We'll see how it goes. But that leads me into you, Dale. Um, I was not exaggerating. In 2007, people were stunned when you won a spot on the Santa Barbara City Council. And you benefited from the fact that you were able to fly under the radar. So people didn't see you as a threat. They didn't see you as somebody who was going to win. And so they didn't come after you, right? And that's the dangerous uh, sin that people do make in politics is underestimating the the competition and so you didn't have any negatives in there you were just dale the neighborhood advocate the uh, bungalow haven advocate bungalow haven district and you people in the community really liked you in your neighborhood because you were saying things that they agreed with and it was largely rob dayton uh the, the transportation department uh this was street narrowing, ball bouts, mini roundabouts in the outer state street, kind of, you know, San Roque-ish neighborhood, not quite that far, but these traffic calming devices. And this was all part of sort of this new wave of urban planning, which was we need to plan for multiple uh, modalities, and which means bikes, pedestrians, a lot of the people who are making those planning decisions ride bikes and they you know they have a specific agenda with that but that's also what they learn you know in school and their training that's right. and that's then right. you, you you uh you're here saying this works here but it doesn't work here don't do it here this is santa barbara the nuance of these roads it's a traffic safety and that resonated that message resonated you were also a preservationist you know sort of talking about hey let's not change Santa Barbara to such a degree that people don't want to live here anymore. And it's a message that still resonates to sure. look at where yeah. we're at. And so you did it, you know, and there's a, I don't remember who took the photo, but you've got your hand pumped up there. I'm sure you have it somewhere in your house, frame, maybe. you know, I in think gold. <laughs> and I think even you probably were surprised that night. Oh, talk to me a little bit, Dale, about you and how you were able to pull that off from your perspective and and just sort of what it meant for you to be able to go from being the activist to the decision maker. Well, talk about being politically naive. I knew absolutely nothing about political campaigns. And I think I exhibited that many times during that first campaign. The, uh, the motivation for running, it was, not, it was not easy. I had been, as you said, involved in neighborhood issues. Actually, the first thing, I was living on the Upper East Side at the time, and the first thing that I got involved with was, this was when the city was just restarting their street sweeping program, and they wanted to put on every block face, I think it was six signs saying no parking on whatever, Tuesday from one to four or whatever it was. And the neighborhood was outraged about that. And I don't even think that it was actually permissible because that part of the Upper East, at least, was within what's called the Mission Historical District. And there are restrictions about how many street signs you can have in that district. But anyway, that was Public Works's 
plan going forward. And neighbors got together. I ended up being one of the spokespersons for that for that cause. And eventually we got public works to back down. Now, granted, part of it, uh, part of the reason for that was we don't have on the Upper East, it's almost entirely single family homes. And we don't have the kind of street parking problems that you have in other parts of town, like the West Side, where there's a lot more renters, where there's a lot of houses that are occupied by more people than they were designed for. Everybody has a car and they don't have any place to park them. So they're all on the street. So it's not the, the clearing the streets for street sweeping wasn't quite the same issue. So that helped. But anyway, that was my first involvement. And then, as you said, the whole traffic calming issue that that was a nonpartisan issue. I mean, there are plenty of Democrats who are upset about that. So I was I was fortunate in that Nobody knew who I was. Nobody suspected that an incumbent running for re-election to city council, which is usually kind of a ho-hum affair, nobody thought an incumbent could lose. And the turnout was abysmal. I can't remember what it was now, but it was like 17% or 18%, something like that. Um, nobody was paying attention. And so, the, uh, so I was lucky, but I didn't run because I thought because I had done all the political calculations, I didn't understand the political calculations. I ran because I cared about what I was, what I was talking about. And I think that at least in the few people who came, who came to the forums, I think people saw that. Right. Yeah. Well, I was in San Jose at that time. So that's probably why there was no coverage. Uh, (laughs) That must've been it. Uh, but you sort of ushered in then after you was Michael Self, right? And uh, right. Frank Hotchkiss got right. elected. So you know, there were three conservatives on the council at one point, and that was significant. You know, now it's sort of like it's all Democrats, you know, and so they all right. are just kind of in the same box. And when one of them goes a little bit the other direction, it's like, oh, my goodness. But there was a time when there was actually three to four sort of sort of sort of votes and there's something about your messaging that is really um, admirable because you come at it from a intellectual perspective but you do it at a high level you're not really when you campaign you're not attacking people you're not criticizing people at least you weren't you were just articulating your perspective on the issue And I think that really resonates really well with people when you are negative, at least in Santa city of Santa Barbara, people don't really like that, right? People want to feel as though they can trust you, even if they disagree with you. And so you were able to do that. Once you got elected, you uh, kind of, I don't want to say feuded famously like Marty Bloom and E.F. Falcone. Like I said, when I talked to Marty Bloom last week, but um, you did have some good little rivalries with Doss Williams. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> um, what do you recall about effectiveness of serving on the city council once you got there? Was it fulfilling? Was it rewarding? You had to deal with Doss. You had to deal with um, Helene, I think you got along with Helene a lot better, but what do you recall about being, being effective on the council? Well, I think the revelation to anybody who gets into an organization like that 
is that things move very, very, very slowly. So, oh, the other revelation, of course, was in California, we have the Brown Act that prohibits discussion among any more than a minority of your fellow council members. So on any issue that comes up before council, you are technically not allowed. I don't think everybody necessarily adheres to this, but technically you are not allowed on our council where we have seven, where we have seven positions. You, you cannot talk to more than two of your fellow council members about any other issue. I think that's an enormous obstacle. And practically everybody who is first elected to a position like that is astonished to find that it's true. Now, if you can get elected to the state legislature, they exempted themselves from that rule. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you can survive and get to that level, you'll be okay. Um, the well, well, Dale, shouldn't they be making it that way in the, uh, in the legislature as opposed to changing it at the local level? Oh, but Josh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be fair and equitable. <laughs> um, so that's one thing I learned. The, the really amazing thing that I learned was the incredible influence of the public employee unions at, at the city level. And then obviously I extrapolated from that at the county and the state level. So the, probably the pivotal error in California history in my lifetime, at least in my opinion, was when Jerry Brown made it possible for public employees to unionize. In my view, the civil service, civil service rules going back to the late 19th century were more than adequate for protecting government employees from abuse. I mean, to the extent that that can be done, anybody can end up in a bad workplace and it doesn't matter whether it's a government or a private company. The civil service rules I think are enough to layer on top of that public employee unions has been a disaster for the state. And the reason it's been a disaster is when you have employees who can contribute money to the campaigns of the people who are going to be quote unquote managing them, then the taxpayer gets cut out of the deal entirely. It's all between the employees and the various legislature uh, whether it's state, county, or city level, the various legislative people who are going to make the decisions about their pay and benefits. Yeah, uh, a couple of things there. Uh, you make some good points. Uh, the Brown Act is good. The Brown Act, journalists love the Brown Act. So <laughs> I think uh, the last thing we need in terms of transparency in government is allowing local boards to be able to meet in private. And let's be real, they figure out ways to get around that as it yeah. is. So, sure. Uh, sure. But, but yeah, the whole public employee, you know, we saw with the PLA agreement, you know, there's lots of discussion about, well, how is that fair? You know, and then you look at SEIU giving, giving money um, to, to candidates, but you know, it's a complicated sort of, sort of conversation because it is first amendment, right. To be able to give free speech and you make a contribution and sure. And so there's that. So you can have the conversation maybe about limits and that sort of thing. But well, I, and I wouldn't argue for a moment that an individual employee shouldn't be allowed to contribute to someone's political campaign whenever they like. The problem right. is the contributions are not coming. Well, they may come, 
occasionally from a private employee, but the, the big contributions, the ones that are having a decisive effect on our elections are coming from the unions themselves, yeah. from the money that they garner from union members. Yeah. And, and so when you served, you were reelected, but the second time you ran though, you faced much more um, adversity, right? You, right. You, you, it was a real race. It was a real contest. Right. Yeah. Um, I remember when you were done, when you were, um, you had served your two terms and you were leaving the council because the council has term limits. You got very emotional in your sort of farewell speech. You know, as I recall, you said something like um, this was the like the greatest honor of your life to be able to serve in this role, which showed me you really valued this position. It wasn't a, a thing you were doing just to do uh, just because you had nothing else to do that. Right. It meant something to you and every meeting that you attended you 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 felt that and you wanted to do your best for for the taxpayers and the, for the constituents and i think that genuine disposition that you have comes through and that's why someone like you is is uh can be liked by some democrats and moderates and and, and you're not like this emotional national right-wing conservative that probably makes you not as popular with some of those people in the party. So I recall that, you know, when you, when, when you left the city council, what was that like for you? Like, how, how were you able to say goodbye to that part of your life? And, and have you ever, have you fully, do you still, do you wake up in the morning? Like, remembering those days or <laughs> <laughs> no i don't but sometimes i have nightmares just kidding the uh <laughs> you on that day that i left um i was very emotional and and it was because i really did feel that it was an incredible honor to be representing the people of this city it's it's something that is not very many people get a chance to do so it was an honor However, I also have to say, after eight years of city council meetings and committee meetings, many of which are very slow. I mean, if you want to be in a legislature, you have to be ready for that. Nothing happens quickly. And the issues tend not to change very much. We deal with the homeless every year. We deal with the budget every year. We deal with pretty much the same issues around. And I mean, they, they go up and down in intensity but the issues don't change. So I felt that eight years was a substantial piece of my life and, and, a, and I hope it was a useful contribution to the city, but I, I, I don't yearn to go back to city council. I, I, it's time for other people to take that on. Yeah, you know, we got about five or six minutes left here. I wanted to ask you, because you're, you're in a unique position. You used to be a Democrat, you know? Famously, you gave money to Lois Caps, right? That's true. You gave money to Lois Caps. Something happened along the way, Dale. You changed. <laughs> you switched. What happened? Well, it's actually kind of a long story, but it was a combination of things. It was um, so most of my professional career has been in the corporate world, and one of the things that I learned from that is that corporations, for all their faults, are an extraordinarily efficient way to organize people to get things done. So, I mean, that's, that's 
one of the tenets of, of, as I see it, left-wing thinking is that corporations are inherently evil. Well, that's not true. We depend on corporations for most of the useful things that we have in our lives. So that was, that was something. And I, I, had been, I had been trending in a, in a direction, I think what people would call a more conservative direction for a time, but what really sort of flipped the switch was 9-11. And at the time, I, I happened to be, I had, I had attended a conference in London, and then I was in Venice on 9-11. And a friend of mine called me and said, Dale, you need, you need to look at the TV and see what's going on. And there it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and of course, I was shocked, as everybody was, and walked out into the streets, and it was Italy. And you know, it was a news item, but nobody was really paying attention to it, which was kind of shocking. The... The next day, I went into a church and prayed, which I I hadn't done that in probably, I don't know, 30 years at least. And that was the beginning of my transformation, because when I came back, I found that a lot of my Democratic friends were saying, oh, well, that's because the United States has done terrible things to the Arabs, and, and uh, it, it's our fault that, that they attacked us. Um, to me, that was nonsense. And the, the, the people who attacked the United States that day were Islamic fanatics. They were living in a completely different world from us. And there was nothing that, well, I shouldn't say nothing we were doing. Our mere presence in the Middle East was blasphemous to them. So that was really the, the, the start for me of coming to see the world in a much different way. And, and so you uh, changed your party preference eventually because of I that. I did. Uh, I did. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Dale, a little little known story. You were almost mayor too. Had Ia stayed in that race, you would be mayor because you, <laughs> you, they would have split and it would have been, you know. I uh, like your calculations, Josh. Oh come on, that, you know that there's just not enough votes. You, you got a lot of votes as 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 it was. Uh, so a couple of things, uh, or last thing, I want to talk to you about, there's so much national attention on the preliminary opinion from the Supreme Court. That was oh, right. Yes. Yes. And uh, obviously that's a flashpoint in our culture or society, sure. and it's had huge ramifications and we're all, all awaiting the actual final ruling. Um, I'm probably not a surprised to anyone how you might feel on this issue, but <laughs> Um, talk to me a little bit about sort of your reaction to that and how the, the media reacted to that and how mm -hmm. the activists and people on all sides of that discussion um, are reacting to that. Um, right. wh what do you, th what do you, th is this good, bad for the country? You're probably going to defend the the, 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 opinion, but what do you think of that situation? I think it's good for the country. I read, I read Justice Alito's opinion. And it's, it's very rational. It's very down to earth. It's not a sweeping opinion. It's directed, it's focused on the inherent problems with Roe v. Wade, with, with the opinion from 1973 that even, even Ruth Ginsburg acknowledged. And that's that there was really no constitutional reasoning behind it. So for people to say that Roe v. Wade was a constitutional decision, it's not, they haven't read the decision then because it depended on two things. First, a right to privacy that they derived from other things in the constitution, but is not in the constitution. And then the idea that somehow 
a an abortion is a private act. And that's, you know, how you get to that reasoning, I don't know. They wanted to get to it, so they did. And what it did essentially was to remove from the democratic process a very a very important issue that, that people are very divided on. At the time of Roe, there were 30 states in the United States that completely banned abortion under all circumstances. I don't think that's necessarily a good idea, but that's what the people in those states wanted. And the reason the United States, such an enormous and diverse nation has survived as long as it has, is because of that federalist idea that most of the decisions that affect people's lives need to happen at the state level or local level. So I think Alito's decision is extraordinarily well-reasoned, well thought out. It's not sweeping, it, it doesn't do what Roe did. And a lot, of the, a lot of people, I know some people have mentioned, well, the majority of people in America support Roe. Well, the reason they do is because they don't understand Roe. They think that if it's struck down, then all of a sudden abortion is going to become illegal everywhere, which it's not. So what will happen is the issue of abortion will come back to the democratic decision-making of the people and people on both sides, whether they're pro-choice or, or pro-life or somewhere in between, they are going to have to convince their fellow voters of their position. And I think that's good. Um, so it won't be, uh, you know, illegal, but it'll be up to the states. But we knew some states, you know, um, do make it illegal. So, sure. you know, just as a practical matter, if, you know, you have a, a person who is, uh, um, it's where it's illegal in their state, okay, and they don't have a lot of access to, to travel to, you know, there maybe there's it's prohibitive for them to go just drive a few hundred miles or something to go to another state. Um, isn't that a practical uh, impact on them uh, uh, that hurts them, that hurts the most vulnerable people? Because we know that if you're of means and you need to have this medical procedure done, you'll figure it out. But doesn't this hurt the most vulnerable people the most in our society by saying that it's... it's um, not going to be regulated on a federal level it has the potential to but we don't live in a world we don't live in a perfect world so i was just reading about the case of a, a young woman in the central valley who was a victim of incest uh, endured an abusive marriage was a drug addict and had a stillborn child and the the child was determined to have methamphetamine in its system, and she was convicted of manslaughter on that basis. That was not a just outcome, in my view, and uh, fortunately, that was overturned. But that's a, that's an example of sometimes people live in dire circumstances, and that's unfortunate. But we can't fix the world. So I think what will happen, interestingly, when when Ginsburg talked about Roe v. Wade, she thought what should have happened was that the Texas law should have been struck down and left at that. The Texas law prohibited abortion in all cases. That ruling, that's probably the best that the pro-abortion side could have achieved politically. And it might've led to a more reasoned discussion about which circumstances, if any, abortion should be permitted. It would have led to that political discussion. It wouldn't have solved the problem overnight. But when we try to solve problems 
political problems on which people strongly disagree, when we try to just cut through the noise and solve them overnight by dictating the, the results, it doesn't work out well for the long term. Yeah. And the flip side of that, though, is when we let religion and like moral values regulate what people can do with their bodies, that doesn't work out either because uh, we shouldn't be coming at it from a perspective of right and wrong. We should be coming at it from a perspective of right and wrong is your, your personal decision in your own household. That's up to you. Uh, but if you do choose something, it should be safe, right? I mean, that's also the other, the other, the other side of that. Um, but well, well, Josh, I I I understand the point you're getting at. However, right and wrong is the basis of law. We agree that murder is wrong. Period. That's not a personal choice. So it's not it's not so easy to make these decisions. And I, I understand that on the pro-choice side that. It's the argument is, well, it's my body, so it's my choice. I understand that. It's, it's a rational argument that one can make. Pro-life side will say, well, there's actually two different bodies at work here. Okay, And that's a rational position as well. And so somebody is going to have to, not somebody, but many people are going to have to come to some kind of compromise on this. If you look at the, the polls, I've looked at the polls, a majority of Americans favor abortion, at least in some circumstances, during the first trimester. A majority are against abortion under any circumstance in the third trimester and in most circumstances in the second. And that includes a majority of Democrats. So this is, this is not a black and white issue. And that's, that's, that's why it needs to be left to the voters. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Dale, appreciate the time and uh, your, the great conversation on a variety of issues. And I, I'm not going to be able to get you to make any predictions then on any of these. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, thanks a lot for taking time and uh, offering uh, your, your wisdom and your knowledge and opinions on these issues because they're really valuable. And uh, I think... Uh, you know, it's too bad. You know, I know you don't want to be in office, but, you know, there, there should be room for somebody like you to be able to have a platform to be talking about these issues, you know, so. Well, Josh, I, I appreciate your geniality and uh, it's been a fun conversation. So thank you for inviting me. Okay. Have a great day. Take you care. too.